Welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us versus one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now. Hey everyone, welcome back to the School of Unlearning podcast. Today, our guest is Claude Silver. Claude is the world's first chief heart officer for VaynerMedia. The ethos of the company is people first, and Claude embodies that. Her only job description is to touch the hearts of everyone at the company. She's an intuitive, a feeler, a spiritual being, and she gets the chance to translate all of that magic into the workplace. I think you'll find this episode brings you joy, solace, and lots of love. Brew some tea, get your pen and paper out, and enjoy this special episode. Hi, Claude. Welcome to the School of Unlearning. Hey, it's great to be here. It's uh, my kind of school. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of like a lifelong school, I think, for for both of us. That's how we're approaching life these days, which is great. Um, so I've been a big fan of your work in the corporate world, um, really bringing more uh, heart-centered leadership to everyone you come in contact with. And so I just thought to myself, uh, she's a disruptor. She's uh, going against the grain and challenging the status quo and doing everything possible to blow up the corporate nod and the corporate way in the in the in the um, in the way that it needs to be improved. So that's why I asked you to come on this podcast. So again, thank you so much for the work you do. Thank you so much. I uh, I love I love that idea of uh, blowing it up. I kind of think of myself as um, like an optimistic rebel in many ways. Yay. Yeah, I know you actually have um, a tagline. I think I bought one of your shirts. It's a emotional optimism. So we'll definitely yeah. get into that. I have lots of questions around how you work with that, especially in the corporate setting. Um, so on the School of Unlearning, you know, it's funny, um, I often bring in incredible humans who are, again, disruptors. And uh, I do want to get to what you're doing now in the corporate world at VaynerMedia. I think it's really magical. And you're becoming, again, a spokesperson for humans in uh, the corporate world. Um, but uh, I do want to kind of figure out how you started with all of this. So one of my first questions is always about childhood, because I think all things come back to childhood, whether it be cravings, um, how we show up in the world, our attachment style, our le- leadership style. So I just want to kind of know more about um, life for you growing up and and what was, uh, what was what were some influential learnings you had growing up? Yeah, I, I mean, I love talking about my childhood because it was really special, I think. You know, I, I grew up in New York City and lived in New York City until I was 11 and a half. Then we moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico. And on the weekends, in the summers, my parents had a house upstate New York in Cold Spring. And my weekends and summers were magical in that my dad was teaching me and my brother how to, you know, throw a baseball and basketball and football. And then we were hiking in the woods. And my dad used to play this game with us called Lead My People, which was really a judgment game. It was a leadership game for, you know, kind of acting out how he he saw leadership, which was very much oriented around taking care of your people. And, uh, and, and you know, you and I might say servant leadership today, although I'm not really using that term these days, but really empathetic leadership, you know, leaders eating last. And that type of imaginative play coupled with being confident in my body as a as an athlete a tomboy was really awesome for me and I'm so glad I had that because school academics was very challenging for me and so as I had that as my bedrock and I 
I knew from a very early age uh, that I could feel people. I was intuitive. I didn't know what that was, but um, mm-hmm. I, you know, when I, I'm so grateful that I had that and I had wonderful role models around me. My parents are both extremely generous. They're very, um, they're very smart. They're creative. They're clever. My Nana, who really, I think, emotionally raised mm-hmm. me, who I speak a lot about, uh, who died four and a half years ago at 101, you know, she was the biggest mm-hmm. empath I knew. So having all of that really did somewhat keep me on the ground as I struggled through pretty much every grade and, and uh, mm. every class I was in, uh, with the exception of like a humanities or English class. So yeah. uh, we moved to Santa Fe. Santa Fe is incredible. It's very outdoorsy. And so it's a very different type of life, you know, coming from the melting pot of New York City where you see every one of everything then you go to New Mexico, northern New Mexico, which is adobe, which is tumbleweeds, mm-hmm. which is, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. tall aspen trees, but certainly not any oak trees and, and not, not, not the same kind of greenery and um, uh, um, indigenous people, Native American people, a lot of uh, people from Mexico, obviously, are really in those days were really uh, the majority and you know, this Jewish kid from New York City was really the minority. So it was a wonderful culture shock and one that I embrace to this day. Mm, what a beautiful story. Um, first of all, I love Santa Fe. I was there recently and uh, I can resonate with like, you know, nature and also just the the energy there was super, I felt calming and soothing, which was great. Um, it sounds like you had some, again, incredible people growing up, your father playing this game, lead my people, um, sort of not fitting in, in the traditional academic sense, which, um, I understand as well. It sounds like your Nana and your father were key figures. Would you say that either one of them was more influential or was there something that they did that was the most influential thing, like a a pivotal moment where you felt seen and safe to be who you were? Yeah. And my mom too, by the way, she was, she was awesome too. Um, my dad, I have always known that he was my biggest cheerleader, always. And he made that very known to me. I'm the, I'm the oldest. I, I'm also the oldest grandchild. Um, and my dad just, he had a sixth sense about me. Both of my parents did. And so I think just the steadiness in his belief in me was really mm-hmm. extremely helpful. Um, even though I struggled with academics and my parents are both well-regarded in the academic world, have initials after their names, that type of stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And my Nana, though, you know, she started calling me Heart instead of my name. She called me Heart at a very, very young age. And so mm-hmm. we called each other Heart. And uh, you get on the phone, hi, Heart, it's your heart calling. Hi, Heart, oh my what's my heart doing? Wow. And, you know, this was up until very recently. She was the person that went out of her way to make other people feel good. She was the person that always left people feeling better. Even mm-hmm. if they already felt 100, 100%, they felt 110% after being with her, after being held in that space. And we would leave a Trader Joe's or uh, the bank or wherever, getting a drink or whatever. And she would say, as the person handed her back her change or her credit card, hey, Robert, yes, would you do me a favor? And have a peaceful day. Mm. And that's how she would leave people. And really like, right. will you do me the favor? Pause. Like, what's it going to mm-hmm. be? Take your groceries mm-hmm. out. <laughs> would mm-hmm. you have a peaceful day? I mean, mm-hmm. how stunning and gorgeous and simple 
that is. And so that's really what's in me. Her heart and her the generosity of her heart is something that I only hope to to be like her when I'm 101 years old. Hmm. Well, from what I've observed, virtually you sound very much like you've inherited her energy, and you lead with that that uh, empathy driven way. Um, what a beautiful person to grow up alongside. Uh, and so, how did you handle that? Like feeling like maybe not full belonging in school, at least with the way that metrics and like reviews were given but then also coming home and like having three people maybe more people I'm sure too who just like uh, celebrated you and allowed you to to be who you were how did you balance that those two worlds well I'm, I'm really happy you asked the question the way you did because I didn't balance it I didn't know how to balance it I think I excelled in sports because I knew that's what I had to ground me up until a point and I excelled as a friend because I I enjoy people and I've been able to read people for a while, but I didn't like myself at a certain point. And so I rebelled Mm -hmm. against that. And I rebelled against the uh, potential that I knew people saw in me. And, you know, I did a a really nice deep dive into experimenting with drugs and being unsafe Mm -hmm. and pushing my boundaries quite far. Uh, I'm, I'm a kind of person, I think, you know, I'm such an experiential learner that I need to feel a lot. And mm-hmm. in those days I needed to kind of, I was in pain. I needed to feel pain. I didn't mm-hmm. feel like I belonged or I was worthy. So I made myself feel extra unworthy or mm-hmm. that I didn't belong. You know, I was smart enough to know how to try mm-hmm. to self-destruct and, and certainly um, not be a great friend to myself until I became a great friend to myself. And that took me all of my 20s for sure, even Mm -hmm. into my 30s. So I didn't have balance necessarily. I really, um, and it's something that I've had to work on my entire life, which is, you know, there's a fine line, I think, between modesty, humility, and healthy self-confidence. And Mm -hmm. that's a relationship that I'm constantly having to really define for myself and be able to internalize success and change story storylines that I have in my head or take in praise. Those are things that are, I'll always yeah. work on. Yeah. Yeah. I think that a lot of people listening would resonate with that. When you said you kind of didn't like yourself or you didn't like the potential that other people saw in you, what was it that you felt um, resistance towards? Um, uh, two things. One, I didn't want to turn into what other people saw me as. Mm -hmm. I wanted to turn into whatever it was I was dreaming of. Mm -hmm. And that, by the way, was was far away. (laughs) That was like being at the beginning of the alphabet and wanting to get to (laughs) Z overnight. Mm -hmm. And then then the second thing was, and I'm saying this now, looking back in time, but I, I know it to be true, which was I felt like a disappointment in many ways. And so I wanted to just get cut to the chase and just be that disappointment. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, and also I, under, it, like, I don't, I just, it's, I resonate. Like I understand yeah. that. Um, so you found safety and a sense of um, agency in sports and in friendship. Um, was there sort of a pivotal moment where you said that you were in your twenties and thirties where you had a, a bit of a turnaround, you started to become friends with yourself. I'm curious if there was like a pivotal mo- moment or turnaround where you started to say like, Oh, like I need to soften towards this. If I can, you know, show up in the world. 
Yeah, I, I was 19 actually, and I, I took myself out of college after my sophomore year, and I was going nowhere fast, going real, actually I was going very fast down a dead-end path, and mm -hmm. I told my parents I needed to find the longest wilderness leadership program to just get my butt kicked, so I looked at Knowles, and then mm -hmm. I found Outward Bound, and I went on a 93-day wilderness leadership program. Uh, with Colorado Outward Bound, I was 19. I was the only young woman. I was with nine young men. You know, every 18 days, we got a shower. Every 18 days, we got snail mail or used the payphone. Um, you know, we, we talk about, like, roughing it. You know, yeah, like, yeah. survival. And mm -hmm. that was the biggest turning point that I had had up until that point. So I was 19. Mm -hmm. And I went in to that course with self-destructive tendencies, not liking myself, you know, mm -hmm. having nine inch nails, had like a whole black as your solo in my ears, right, you know, right. Yeah. And I came out of that, you know, leading these nine young men and our instructors out of the Grand Canyon, you know, being able to raft and captain a uh, class five rapids. Like I came back into my body mm -hmm. and I also learned what servant leadership was. I also learned that, at the end of the day, it is about my team. It is about my people. And I want to take care of them because we work better mm -hmm. that way. We work better when we find a language together, when we trust each other, when we collaborate, and when we can be vulnerable with one another. Mm -hmm. And so that has stuck with me since then, forever and ever and ever. Yeah. Um, and then you know, I chose not to go back to school until I was 27. I dabbled with some courses here and there. I was in San Francisco and really got into intuitive studies and clairvoyancy and chakras mm -hmm. and a lot of like, we'll just call it new age stuff for you know, people yeah. want to call it new age stuff. But sure. for me, yeah. energy and, and Buddhism and Hinduism and chanting and, you know, doing a midnight chants or 24 hour chants and just looking for me. I was looking for yeah. me. I was looking for answers. Yeah. And I ended up, you know, really falling for Marianne Williamson and, 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 mm -hmm. uh, you know, the only two emotions are fear and love. And so this was, you know, San Francisco in the middle of the 90s, and there was so much happening there. It was a wonderful Disneyland in many ways for me in a playground, and I had just come out, and so it was also mm -hmm. a wonderful place to be. Mm -hmm. um, and so my 20s were really, they were an extension of, of school. They were, they were mm -hmm. like university for me. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, it sounds like, you know, and, and this is what I, um, I, I really struggle with academics too, as a young kid. Um, I'm the youngest of seven. And so I just grew up with like four brothers and lots of dominant male energy, which I didn't really respond well to. <laughs> I've gotten better at it, but, um, navigating it anyway. And so I had a hard time too. I would walk into rooms and the first thing I would do was just scan people. Cause I was like, okay, safe, not safe, safe, not safe. And I didn't know what I was doing at the time, similar to you. And then I would go into the classroom and there was a lot of sort of, um, turmoil at home with like, you know, drugs, alcohol. And so I, I couldn't focus on school, you know, like when I was coming back and forth to that. So I, you know, I always thought I wasn't a good student. I wasn't intelligent. And then, you know, later on in my years, I'm like, oh, like there's, there's some intelligence there, like surviving in that, that vortex of, of energy. Um, and so it kind of pushed me into that world as well too. So it sounds like for you, um, 
nature really was like a coming home, you know, it like it allowed you to apply the game um, that your dad taught you, lead my people out in nature, like literally <laughs> like crash sure. course survival, get these nine guys out of the Grand Canyon or wherever you were. Um, that's incredible. So what were some of like, if, if there was like one or two core learnings, um, some of your most influential people taught you, your Nana, your mom, your dad, maybe a coach, a core learning, I think is really interesting. It's like, it's something that's, um, told to you once or shown to you once, and it proves to be true decade after decade. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of things we have to unlearn. Most things actually adulthood is basically unlearning, I think, but I don't know, there's always a few that stay. And so I, I feel like you probably have some really good nuggets from some of your most influential people. Yeah, I would say that one that has stuck with me for a very, very long time is it's really not about being right. It's about being better in the world. It's about giving. Mm -hmm. It is about creating places where people feel loved. And I can say that my whole family taught me that over and over and over again in many different ways. Mm -hmm. And it showed me that that's who they were. That's who my Nana was. Mm -hmm. so that I think is the first thing. Um, and I would say probably the second, the second one was what my parents were telling me all along, which was we all have this reservoir of untapped potential inside of us. Like we, we have this, what are you going to do about it? And mm -hmm. even though I chose to kind of shun away from that for a while. I never forgot that, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, I never forgot it. And in fact, it's something I say a lot to, uh, to younger employees now and, and people that are looking for some mentorship, which is, you know, you have this inside of you, let's figure out like, what is it saying? What does it want to manifest into? What shape is it? What color was it? Mm -hmm. you know, give it, let's give it voice. And I think for me, I didn't know how to give it voice. It didn't mm -hmm. help. So I just boycotted it and yeah. decided to, you know, break on through yeah. to the other side. Yeah, totally. That makes sense. So when you think about like the potential that everyone has in them, you know, um, and then like this sense of this awareness of like, you know, making, making use of it and like bringing it to the world in some capacity, I always felt like as a young kid and even that's a rooster, by the way. Just, oh my God, they're here. Amazing. They're here in Kauai. They wake me up every morning. Um, I, so this topic of potential and like making use of it, I always felt like a lot of pressure, especially earlier on to like make use of whatever I had. And like, I, I think, I think I was probably a bit too serious as a kid, but anywho, um, how do you kind of balance that? I mean, now also at VaynerMedia and just in mentorship broadly, like there's a, one can put a lot of pressure to like make use of, uh, their gifts or their potential. And that can often sort of self-destruct and, um, lead down a more like uh, serious authoritative path? How do you mm -hmm. make that playful and like bring that out in people? Well, I think the first, the first way is helping someone identify what that voice is inside of them that's saying whatever it's saying. So, you know, 85% of our, of our uh, voices in our head are negative. And so mm -hmm. like, what is that? what is that talk track saying? And I sure as heck had a talk track. I mean, a real big one. And uh, mm. I'm sure I was told to change that story in other ways. I just didn't really you know, catch that wave but uh, until later. But, you know, in the, in the playfulness of it all, like, what is it saying? Is it saying like, you know, you're a loser because you can't juggle a home life and the work and you can't step away to take 10 minutes outside or like, what is it saying? All right, let's 
let's say, let's say the sentence, like exactly how it is. And now let's let that other part of you enter into the conversation and let's recreate mm -hmm. that sentence in a way, mm -hmm. which is like, you know, I'm a badass. I'm a badass multitasking machine who has a huge compassionate heart. I'm completely making that up, but yeah. Yeah. It, it, um, so, and, and one of the things that I worked with a coach on a while ago was to help me see that whatever I'm telling myself, I have a body of evidence to mm -hmm. counteract that. If I'm mm -hmm. saying to myself, well, anyone can be a you know, digital strategist. Well, what's the body of evidence that I have that I've created, you know, great digital strategies for, you know, CPG brands around the world or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, my, when I was a, when I was a strategist in agencies, so I like to also you know work on whiteboards with people and write things yeah, down so we can totally we can find patterns together and then you know mm -hmm. circle them and so someone could see wow all of the, I just said all of that great stuff about myself right or I, right these are my values they are right there black and white on the on the, on the whiteboard and mm -hmm. um, you know really going back to being, you know, I said earlier, being the space where people come to feel loved, for me, the magic is creating the space together because the space mm -hmm. is where it all happens. The space, the vessel, whatever you want to call it, this neutralized, wonderful place that doesn't think anything of you other than you are, you know, a beautiful child of this universe. Yeah, yeah. There's so much there. I feel like I could go a million different directions and ask you questions. Um, I'm so curious on how you create that space in the corporate world. Um, you know, also too, I feel like we're skipping a couple chapters in your life. We will get to them, I'm sure. But, you know, you're 19, you have this pivotal moment in San Francisco and this sort of life, masters in life, uh, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then how did you, I do want to get to like co-creation because I think that's super important for like leaders to hear and and also people who are being led to here. Um, how did you get into the corporate world? And like, and how did you, again, I don't, I, I guess I don't like the word balance, but like, how did you navigate being such like a heart centered, energy driven person in creative, you know, agencies and, and marketing and all that? Like, how did you do that? So I, I really don't think I had any business being in the corporate world, and I had absolutely no business going into advertising and communications because I didn't know what the heck it was. However, right. it was 1998. I finally finished my BA uh, in human development and transpersonal psych. And back in those days, you really needed a diploma, and I got my first job at an internet.com company. Mm -hmm. And that was just the wave that was in front of me. Uh, and it paid me more money than the, the uh, grocery store I was managing at the time. And so that's really how I ventured into like this world of digital. And in those days, I feel like it was, it was very, it was such the wild, wild west. So it was definitely what you see is what you get. I didn't feel like I needed to be anything other than me mm -hmm. because we were all learning what project plans look like. We were all learning, you know, uh, yeah. what campaigns were supposed to look like and, and that stuff. However, you know, back to your, your actual question, which is really a really important one, is I never changed my stripes. I'm, not, I'm mm. unable to change my stripes. And that means that sometimes I had an imposter syndrome. That means sometimes I was definitely faking it until I made it, you know, or faking it until I felt like someone believed that I was worthy of 
the job, the assignment, whatever. The thing that I'm pretty confident at, uh, at internally or confident with internally is I really do believe that once I got into any role or any company, they kept me there. Sure, I could do the job, but the task at hand, the skills, I had the skills, but I really believe they kept me there because of the heart, because yeah. of all that other stuff mm-hmm. that I just mm-hmm. took care of, which is I just took care of the people. Mm-hmm. And it came naturally to me. I gravitated towards that. People gravitated to me. So I'm just you know, incredibly uh, grateful that if Gary and I created a job where I can do this all day, where it's not yeah. a job, it's just my life. Yeah, it's a bit of a it's a vocation basically. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. It's a calling. Cool. It's, it's 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 a it's a accumulation of you know a, a, a lot of life work. Yeah, I'm, uh, my friends are coming in the door now, so okay. <laughs> cool. They're not smiling at me. It's fine, everyone. That's okay. <laughs> Coffee's ready for you. You just have to press on. You're good. It's great. Yeah. Billy's here. He's a doctor. He's in med school. Sweet. Uh, wow. We actually worked together at Parsley years ago, and Day is uh was also at Parsley with me, and he uh was our VP of design, and now he's off in the world doing incredible things. So that's great. Parsley's a heck of a place. Yeah, yeah. I was there for five years, and I just left a few years ago, so or a few weeks ago rather. So I'm like literally on a whole new chapter of life. <laughs> of course. So, I'm glad part, you're in <laughs> yeah, that's why I said I'm on a spiritual sabbatical because like you end a five year relationship, right? And you're like, okay, like I got to go um, start again yes. and also build again. So, um, yeah, I mean with the okay, roosters. yeah, I mean they teach me a lot so far. Um, oh. So I'm curious, you know, I want to. So so as you moved into the corporate world, um, you know, you said I never change my stripes, and so you had to kind of battle a little bit with like some of the things you said, like imposter syndrome and everything like that. When did you, uh, and you also talked about this before, when did you first start, when did you first start to become um, aware that challenging your thoughts was like an incredible cognitive and spiritual tool? I know Byron Katie's really big these days and like putting out the work. Was there a teacher, a therapist, a coach who helped you understand how to like really um, challenge the inner talk that was coming your way? Um, I definitely went to therapy, and so and, and so I have to say maybe, I'm, I'm sure I learned a lot of tools there. That's not what comes to mind, though. What comes to mind is when I go back to um, Marianne Williamson and think about the, you know, the two emotions, mm. fear and love. And that was so simple to me that I realized anything that I do that is not in love is fear. Is That's the darkness. Mm. That's the, mm-hmm. it's as, as real as it felt at times, it's fictitious because mm-hmm. it was most of the time future tripping on something mm-hmm. or, you know. Um, and so I think holding on to the black and whiteness of that really, which I know there's a lot of gray between their fear and love, but for me, it yeah. was very, and then, and then thinking of a lot of the, just the, the mindfulness and the teachings and the Pema Chodron and the, mm-hmm. and jo- a lot of the Joseph Campbell work that I studied, that kind of that, those were my mentors along with my mm-hmm. Nana, you know, mm-hmm. those were really where I took a lot of my, I took solace and I took my strength from, uh, and I also had a pilot life that just never went out, even though I came extremely close many times to, mm-hmm. you know, riding that rail, uh, but mm-hmm. I knew I would never, I would never put it out. 
Right. Yeah. That's really beautiful and also profound and vulnerable. Thank you for sharing that. Can you tell me a little bit about how you knew that little light inside of you had to keep going, had to keep evolving? Um, It sounds like you had some great spiritual mentors. Pema is my girl. I love her too. Um, So tell me about that light. What did it sound like and when did it come up for you in moments that you thought it was gone? Yeah. You know, I'm going to answer that question this way first and then I'll go backwards. But I saw a, uh, a shaman in 2012 when I was living in London and I was going through a really kind of probably my Saturn return, early, an early Saturn return or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really, I needed some unwinding of, uh, of the twine that I had kind of created. And he, he wanted to know my, my, my astrological sign and all of that stuff. So he, he looked like Gandalf. He spoke like Freud. He had like a British uh, Vienna and, uh, Austrian accent and I sat down in his chair and he looked at my chart and he looked up and he looked at my chart and he looked up he looked at my chart one more time and then he looked up and he said you're the only person I've ever met that can be inside of a coffin and still see the light hmm. and no one had articulated how I felt until that moment and that wow. was very liberating because first and foremost, I was like, whoa, that's exactly what it's like. Yeah. You know, being in the depth of emotion all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've, I've had to really work on not being a sponge all day mm-hmm. uh, as mm-hmm. an empath. And so, you know, being in emotion, which sometimes can be a coffin, uh, when it's, especially as we hang on to emotion, um, but still being able to see the possibility, still being able to see, like, we actually have the power. We, each and every one of us, uh, and, and, and maybe even those of us that have, you know, mental health challenges, we still have, we need support around us. We're not alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can still see, grasp, go forward with the light. Mm. So as a very philosophical way to go into that answer because that's really what it is for me i i've always known that i was a person that wanted to feel and feel immensely Mm -hmm. and feel deeply like literally like squeeze the orange as hard as i could Mm -hmm. and but i still wanted to be here because I'm, i'm i'm here for a reason yeah, you very much are. Um, and it sounds like that that reason also kind of keeps evolving and taking shape through not just work, but motherhood and partnership. And it just just keeps going. Um, so the sentence of, you know, you're the only person who can be in a coffin and still see the light is like deeply profound. And I'm happy you had that reflection. Um, I know that a lot of people here listening will feel the same um, and that there is light. Um what were some of the, you know, you mentioned a lot of your work with Pema Trodron and um, Joseph Campbell as your mentors. Um, I resonate too. When I was 22 years old, my college basketball coach sent me uh, When Things Fall Apart, the book. Oh, and I had never heard of it. I was like, what's falling apart? Why would I keep the pieces apart? Why wouldn't I build them back up? Like, wh- what's that? And she, I was going through a really tough time. I had a car accident and uh, a breakup and I also came out too. It all in one week. It just happened all in one week. It was a really, really, really easy week for me. Anyway, long story short, she sent me that book and I was like, Karen, I don't know what this is. And she's like, just read it. And uh, anyway, so that kind of got me into that world and that helped me find um, some sense of like curiosity and peace amongst the chaos, which in in my life too, it sounds like you, it's like 
basically sports and people were the only things that patched things up for me. Um, so my roundabout question is, um, as you think about uh, finding the light in that darkness and what a beautiful gift it is to do that, what were some of and what are some of the spiritual like practices that you do to cultivate that light, to bring that light out? Because it, you know, these, ex that image um, will come and go for a lot of people throughout their lifetime. It's not a one-time occurrence usually. So what are your spiritual practices and how do they help you bring that light out? Yeah, uh, I love it. It's not a one-time thing. Um, uh, so Tara Brock, uh, Radical Acceptance, was a really pivotal book for me and really is, is a uh, meditate. Uh, her meditations are things that I, are ones that I do. Mm -hmm. And her podcast is one that I listen to often. Uh, but to answer the question, I do a nighttime meditation. I do uh, a gratitude list. And mm -hmm. I do my own, like, praying throughout the day. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's, that's pretty much it. Mm -hmm. I feel like I surround myself with bits and bobs that keep me grounded, whether or not it's, you know, Ganesh right here, or the Rose Quartz right there, or just some things, mm -hmm. you know, that, that make me feel alive and make me feel connected mm -hmm. you know, the mm -hmm. connection is everything mm -hmm. and that's the, the when one feels lonely and one feels isolated and alienated that's where the trouble happens that's where we can really the light the light really starts to flicker and so that being that connected tissue for people and being that connected tissue for myself and making sure that I'm connecting with my friends and the spirit. Yeah. Those yeah. things are so important to me. You yeah. Know? And, um, and also like ha having, having kids, you know, I yeah. like get to see miracles in every single second of the day, mm -hmm. the two and a mm -hmm. half year old and a two month old, like there's mm -hmm. no other miracle. Congrats by the way, on your uh, newest Thank addition you. to your family. What's, what's Thank her name? You. It's a girl, right? Edison. Yeah, Edison. Edison Lake. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Kids, kids will do that to you. Um, that's, uh, that you kind of get to live life all over again through their eyes and totally. see everything unfold. Um, so when I think about, you know, actually, I wanted to ask you, have you heard of the poet um, David White? No, I don't think so. He's, um, he's sort of like a Scottishman, and he's a very famous uh, poet. And he's written a few books on bringing poetry and humanity to the workplace. Um, I'll put some information in the show notes for people, but he actually has a book on that. I think he was approached by uh, an executive years ago and they were like, we need you to come to our corporation. And he was like, I'm sorry, what? And, you know, he was kind of resistant. And then, you know, the person said, well, corporation obviously in Latin means body of people. And we need, we need someone who helps us bring that together. And so I'm not um, expert on the wow. breadth and depth of work that he did in that corporation, but he's written a book about it, um, which I will find and put in the notes too. But um, that just popped up as we we're talking about this. Cause you know, it sounds like, your the light that you felt via what the shaman shared with you in 2012 is has been your north star and you kind of bring that all around to the different rooms you inhabit like whether it be like um a book a poem like whatever it is that allows you to remind yourself of that um i'm curious how how you how that sits in the corporate world um as you think about life at Vayner Media, I know your evolution there has been really cool and unique and uh, a bit radical. Um, how does that sit in? How does that fit? How does your North Star fit? Like, I know the theory and it's amazing and 
people need people need people. Yes, yes, yes. How does it work in those meetings where, you know, things could be intense and there's metrics and a lot at stake? The the first way that it works is that it's a role that's been blessed by our CEO. So this is, this is a role that I've done my entire life. However, now it is something that Gary has said is extremely, 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 extremely important. And so that's, I I will say, I have, uh, I have that fortune of working with a CEO that is very people first and really will put his money where his mouth is there. So that, that's really huge. My job is to scale him. And as he said, you know, the only job description I still have is to touch every single human being and infuse the agency with empathy. And so it's esoteric in the fact that I have to figure out every single day how to do that in in Mm -hmm. each and every room. And so leaving the room and being a feeler is extremely important. Leaving the screen is very, very important. Really understanding that people, people may not know what alchemy we can do together until they experience it or until they, one of their friends says, you know, you're having a, a shitty day or you're having a great day or you want to go talk about something, like go hang with Claude for, you know, 15, 30 minutes. I mean, I had someone today just tell me all of a sudden, like, hey, I'm in recovery and I'm working on an alcohol brand and it's really bad. It's funky for me. And I was mm. like, cool, great information. Let's take care of that. Like, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So I think the, the thing, because I, I feel very comfortable in this role and in these shoes and in these stripes, me just being there for other people and helping direct, helping them see in their rear view mirror what's going on there. And, you know, when, when maybe there's someone that is interrupting someone on screen all day long, or, you know, we've done a pitch and we have not put a person, uh, uh, people of color into the pitch. Like those are things that like we have to get better at. And so, Mm. I have to be in many different places at once. Unfortunately, I have people that now can do that with me and scale me and mm-hmm. and carry the culture as well. You know, and one of the things I love that you talked about the uh, the meaning of the word corporation. And for me, the the meaning uh, the word culture comes from the word cultura, which mm-hmm. is cultivation of the soul. And if there's one thing I probably have done my entire life is to cultivate my soul, is to like, mm-hmm. you know, not navel gaze, but spending a lot, a lot of time trying to yeah. figure. This, it takes this decades. <laughs> yeah. It my God, decades. every every new decade, I'm like, really, you're there? I didn't know that happened. Wait, that's yeah. that's what's going on. It's actually yeah. really cool. I have these moments where I'm like, this is really cool to be a human. Like, I don't. Right. No one ever told me this growing up that it would be this rich. Like, what? You know? I know. It's it's the biggest gift of all. And every single day, every single hour of every single day is a surprise, right? Yeah. To, to your yeah. point, like, mm-hmm. whoa! I get to feel this. I get to see that. I get to see the different color green on a tree like Mm. I don't know it's it's pretty wild so when you when you concentrate on the people and remind people that that's really all there is there is no business success without people and without Mm -hmm. making people feel psychologically safe and that they belong and that they Mm -hmm. matter like recognition Mm -hmm. and not to just blow smoke but like recognition and like that you matter to me Mm -hmm. goes so so far yeah. You know, when people people might send me a quick note and just say, you know, 
Billy is crushing it, of course I want to say, well, please let Billy know he's crushing it. But the first thing I'll do is say, hey, Billy, I hear you're doing great on this account. Like, way to go. Can't wait to get time with you. Yeah. I uh, I learned early on, and you may resonate just with the sports background, that if like if I had a coach who believed in me, I'm like a five foot four. I'm not like super big basketball player, but um, I had I had some game. I could play still a little bit. But when I was a kid, like if a coach believed in me, first it was like um, parents and and brothers who actually did believe in me in sports too. Like I would just run through a wall. Like there wasn't a mile time I couldn't hit. There wasn't an amount of shots I couldn't make if someone like believed in me. And so I think that 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 speaks to like our connectivity as humans, and that that's actually what most of us wake up wanting every day is just at the most primal level is just a sense of belonging. And I think about um, life in the corporate world. I also was a teacher back in the day too. And I felt like that as well. Like if we can just make our students and our employees see that we believe in them and we know who they are more specifically, not broadly with like your awesome statements, but like specifically know their genius zone, their, their skills, people will do incredible, incredible work and they will be resourceful. Um, and I just... I, I love that you're doing that. And how, you said earlier, like, that it's awesome to be to be alive. And so to me, awesome is like derived from awe, right? Like there's awe. How do we in a fast paced world, like how do we how do we bring awe into um, into meetings and moments of pause? Like how do we tactically build a world where there's psychological safety versus like, you know, just saying we like each other? Like, how do we tactically do that? Yeah. And that's, that's really, that's the secret sauce right there. So whether or not that is, if, if I get a, a, a bunch of people together that don't know each other, we can just do some kind of jam session. Like, of course, I'm going to do some kind of fun icebreakers. That's also going to yeah. lean towards a little bit of vulnerability, right? So that we are breaking down or letting our armor down in some way, shape or form and knowing like, I'm going to be right there doing it first, second, and third. Like I will mm-hmm. show up and I will step up and I will talk about being dyslexic or da 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 to let people know like, it's okay. You're safe here. We trust first. And the trust, you just have to keep showing up and show up your actions because mm-hmm. actions do speak louder than words. And so, you know, being accessible, being available, being non-judgmental, as non-judgmental as we can be as a human being. Right. And knowing that, you know, there is nothing that they can tell me. And some of the things are terribly sad and some of the things are incredibly, you know, full of joy. There's nothing that they can say that I won't hold for them. And we won't be able to massage, manage, or at least neutralize in this moment. And then, and then take action on. But we've had to do a lot of training with our leaders to also yeah. let them no, like it ain't about them. Right. You know, this is, there's nothing about, this is about me because we're having this conversation that you invited me into, but when I'm working, it's not about me. It's about how can I turn you into a champion? How can I remind you of your wings? What can we do to identify those roadblocks so that you can go in there and ask your manager for a raise or you can, you know, ask me like, hey, I had this great conversation with Gary, but he said this and I don't understand what that meant. And mm. So whatever yeah. whatever I do there is for them. It's for the greater community of the the cultivation of the, of the soul, of Vayner, yeah. and then the extension, because people leave and they go on and want them to always think about this place as being like phenomenal learning experience for them, phenomenal education, because... 
as much of the hard skills as they're getting, they're certainly getting, you know, the necessary life skills or soft skills, as some people call them, right? They're, yeah. they're learning about self-awareness and they're learning about how to showcase empathy and what that really means for each and every person. Mm-hmm. It's not one size fits all. Yeah. What is your greatest uh, challenge these days? I know VaynerMedia is growing quite fast in a good way and there's a lot going on. Uh, for you specifically, like in this role, what are the challenges, the moments where you're like, skirt, like got to go back to Pema. I have to figure this out. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yes, what do you, um, you know, the, the murder of George Floyd and others was a really um, very, very trying period for all of us. And especially for someone that holds a lot of emotion all day, that was a lot of emotion to hold as well as my own emotion, as well as the media, as well as the world yeah. that we were all dealing with. And um, so I would say, you know, a year a year ago, 13 months ago, was, was overwhelming for me because yeah. they're just in it. You know, and, and we were in the pandemic, and so there was no movement. It was very, the air was still in many ways yeah. uh, <clears throat> until I was able to really kind of like break through. It took me a good like two weeks to kind of like, get through my own darkness there and then mm-hmm. get bringing trainings and awareness and education. So to answer the question, we've now hired a chief diversity officer who starts on Monday and yay. Yay. I'll be really <laughs> excited to uh, work with her and fly wingtip to wingtip and also be able to kind of hand some of this responsibility over so I can take care of the other things that, that are, you know, that, you know, global expansion and more training right. and development and, and those things. But that, you know, not being able to solve racism is, is very difficult for those of us that feel deeply, you yeah. know, and see, and see others as equal, like see difference, but also see equality. And so that's, that was hard for me. Yeah. I think that was hard for, um, for, for me too. And I think for a lot of people in the world, it was just I think I love your quote that resonated. The air was still, you know, there was just like no life force going through that felt um, uh, possible at times. Um, So you think about soft skills a lot. You talk about them a lot. They're life skills. Um, What is the the one soft skill that is sort of like flies under the radar that people that could get more PR, could get more attention and press if people understood its value? That's so good. Um, I mean, First and foremost, the ability to, to regulate your emotions. I think emotional mm-hmm. regulation is just enormous. And that doesn't happen overnight or from reading a book. That comes with a lot of self-awareness, which is kind of like the grandparent. Right. Um, I would always say uh, kindness. I, I'm sorry, I, kindness uh, gets a lot of PR. I would always say uh, gratitude mm-hmm. is something. Mm-hmm. And then patience. And patience is something that we all we all could cultivate more of, especially in those earlier years where I was even telling you, like I was at the letter A and I wanted to get to Z overnight and not realizing that, oh, you get life experience. They're building blocks on top of Mm -hmm. each other. Mm -hmm. You know, just because I thought I was so intuitive and I could read people, it didn't mean that I was going to be like the next Nobel Peace Prize winner. 
Right. You have to go through it. You know, it's like, I think, I think we have such an instant gratification culture, right? It's like things are available at any moment. We can Google something. We don't even have to wonder anymore. We could just find it out, like all these things. And I think food could be at your doorstep in four minutes. Never before did that happen, you know? And so I think it translates a lot to, um, to everybody. And I think that, you know, patience is interesting that you said that because I think people, and I felt like this too, like want to be somewhere else and they're just not ready. They have to like go through it. I kind of was joking with a friend, um, one of my previous guests, Lindsay Murphy, she's an incredible entrepreneur based out of Portland. And her and I were talking about unlearning as like basically a birthing process. Like for years you could be unlearning and you you have to stay patient to go through it. And I kind of was like, you know, it feels like being born again. And like, it doesn't feel fun. It feels like I'm being pushed through like the canal and I'm like wanting to get out, but I'm not ready. And it sounds like really... It was a funny moment. Not sure if I'm communicating that well here, but that's fine. Um, the yeah, point yeah. is, is unlearning. I actually think about patience and unlearning in a similar way um, that it will take time and we have to go through that darkness and that like excruciating uh, level of growth that sometimes, you know, we need. So I guess it brings me to a few questions around unlearning specifically. Um, I feel like we've been broadly talking about unlearning what it means to be a human in the corporate world, but um what, a, what is it that you're unlearning personally, like that you're still rumbling with? You're still like, ooh, that's coming up again. <laughs> like, let me redefine this. And then I'd love to hear what you're actively unlearning in the corporate world. And they may not be different. Um, I think I will always work on unlearning and then relearning self-compassion. I think that's, that's mm. a, uh, at times, an Achilles heel for myself. And one that I have no problem talking about because it's real. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I feel, it's not a think, I feel that a lot of those of us that are givers have to work that much more on giving to ourselves mm -hmm. and being kind and compassionate with ourselves. So we are learning mm -hmm. of that for sure. And yeah, I, I, patience also. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's that's the gift that that children are giving me. It's present tense. They haven't given me. It's present tense. And it's present mm -hmm. tense of understanding what it is like to actually give of yourself mm -hmm. and, and, and why you do it. I mean, someone told me right before our, our first daughter, Shalom, was born, this is, it's, it's the ultimate sacrifice. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But mm -hmm. sacrifice, like, I don't even use that word. Right, and now I understand what that is. So I've certainly un unlearned, and I'm, I am unlearning what that means, and to be more patient and more present, and not grab the phone, mm. you know, and just and roll with it. Like so this morning, I was studying, you know, Shalom's eye uh, eyelashes. Right, so I was just having a moment. Yeah. Oh, what a sweet moment. Yeah. I love that. Um, so self-compassion um, plus one and unlearning the patience and being present for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, those are those are never ending, I think, in that realm. What is your yeah. uh, and, and, and when you think about like companies these days, especially fast growth companies, what is the one thing if they could unlearn this and it, maybe it's uh, to build upon compassion and patience, if they could unlearn that, they would unlock the people like what what is that unlearning? For a company. Yeah, I mean, I think I I think they need to unlearn priorities. 
of mm. where they put their time and energy and heart mm. and potentially bring more heart into the workplace. You know, mm. what is it? The, 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 the thing that is the riddle for me every single day, and I don't have the answer to the riddle yet, which is why you and I are having this conversation and being here, mm-hmm. is when did we decide to have breakfast with our family and play with the dog and go play soccer and have that boozy brunch with our girlfriends and all of that stuff and then go into work and just be a different person. Right. Like when and when did that happen? Because yeah. it was a mass movement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like you and I weren't alive then and it happened. And so we have to unlearn that. And that's called humanity. That's called vulnerability. That's called what you see is what you get. And, you know, being, just being a person of this universe and recognizing like no one has all of the answers mm-hmm. and finding them together, mm-hmm. finding whatever right is together in this moment. Yeah. And that's a big unlearning. Yeah. That's, that's huge. Um, I also think that there's so much opportunity to disassociate from humanity these days, like, you know, whether it be food or alcohol or just social media or anything. And I think every time we disassociate, we strengthen that muscle of escapism. And then when we come into the workplace to be human there, it's like, well, it's it's even doubly hard. So I think I think your unlearning around self-compassion and patience is really sort of the ultimate step one and step two, <laughs> like... I don't know. I think about this a lot in like, um, in, in life and also like being an athlete, it's like, you can't skip steps. Like before you can shoot a three pointer, you have to make a layup. And, and I just like, like where, how did we start all shooting three pointers, (laughs) like in half court shots? I don't know to make the metaphor, but I just, I think about not skipping steps a lot. And I love that you um, are focusing on self-compassion and, um, patience and presence. Um, I have one more question for you. I want to be mindful of your time. Um, what, if you were to define unlearning, like unlearning is, what would you say unlearning is for you? Unlearning is the ultimate act of humility for me. Mm. It is the, the surrender to the fact that everything and everyone is a teacher. Mm-hmm. And everyone and everything is a student. Mic drop moment. Yes. <laughs> Good job, Claude. Um, Thank you. I loved it. I uh, so appreciate your time again. And it's been, oh it's been so fun. Hey, friends. Thanks for listening to the School of Unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't want to miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review, and share this podcast. Because our learning and unlearning never ends, and we don't have to do it alone.